He's Myron Weber. And he's Jeremy Thomas. And this is Mental Supermodels, the podcast where we explore the theory and practice, the art and science of mental modeling. Mental supermodels are practical techniques that influence your mindset and help put complex situations into a perspective that's more understandable. So, Myron, welcome back. It's good to be talking to you again. Likewise. Yep. So our friends over at Mentally Unscripted Podcast, Scott and Stefan, have an episode that we talked about, episode 47, I believe it is, where at the tail end of it, they talk a little bit about Bitcoin maximalism. And, you know, we just wanted to give some of our thoughts in relation to that. And I think that, um, you know, we agreed, you and I agreed and disagreed with a couple of things that they said, but we thought that it was a good topic to expand upon. Um, And look, this whole space, as we know, is evolving. And you and I even have some differences of opinion. But, you know, in relation to their episode, uh, one comment that Scott and Stefan made uh, that I thought was interesting is the idea that in nature, specializers feed and survive on one thing. And, you know, they were uh, referencing, in this case, you know, Bitcoin really just being a store of value is what they were referring to. While generalizers in nature have better survival rates because they can feed on multiple sources, which in this case, they were referencing Ethereum and, and other blockchains that enable a, a wider ecosystem of opportunities. And it made me wonder if there's another way to say this. And feel free to disagree with me, but I think of Bitcoin maximalists as narrow-minded, and I say that respectfully, but I think of Bitcoin maximalists as, as narrow-minded community of believers that think Uh, that the innovation in blockchain has already occurred and that we're all now just waiting for adoption of Bitcoin. Whereas Ethereum and alternative layer one and layer two blockchains incorporate open-minded communities of innovators working together to build an open finance and open digital asset and open gaming ecosystems. So that was my, you know, one of my takeaways from their, uh, from their episode what, what did you think about? I know you had some thoughts about uh, some things that they said. Yeah, I think you're being way too generous. Those guys are clowns. They don't have any <laughs> idea what they're talking about. No, just kidding, of course. Uh, we, we really like Scott and Stefan and, and our previous episode that we recorded with them, a crossover episode that that is uh, uh, up at Mental Supermodels. And uh, they've been very kind to have us both as guests on their show, et cetera. So uh, we really like them and we highly recommend anyone who has not listened and subscribed to Mentally Unscripted definitely needs to go check that out. And they've got an, an awesome ebook uh, that that they have published about uh, how to how to avoid conflict and I highly recommend that. So So check out Mentally Unscripted. And, and we're specifically talking about episode 47. We'll link to that on our show notes. Uh, but yeah, I, I also um, agreed with a lot of what they said, and it really got me thinking. So we wanted to go a little deeper because this was just one segment in what was sort of a, a potpourri episode for them uh, covering a lot of topics. And, and so 
they weren't intending to go deep in it. And, and they, I think, said some, some really good things. But we wanted to go a little deeper in talking about Bitcoin maximalism and, uh, you know, sort of create a little bit more of a nuanced mental model. But there is also one thing that, that uh, or a couple of things they said that I do, I think, disagree with somewhat. And, and I'm, uh, I'm, dr- I'm drastically paraphrasing here, so I don't want it to come across as, as I'm quoting them or, or misquoting them. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and maybe even slightly exaggerating what they said just to, to uh, create the contrast for, for effect for our discussion that um, to some extent that the Bitcoin maximalism doesn't really have a point because and is not helpful because there's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum, they're pretty much the same. Why don't they just get along? Now, they, they did, of course, make the, the distinction between specializers and generalizers, as you said, but it was, it was um, I, I, don't, I don't think that they went as deep as they should have, even though it was a, a short segment in, in kind of exploring the distinction. And that's part of what I want to get into as well. But before we get into that, I, I want to d- focus definitely on this concept of Bitcoin maximalism and, and kind of break it down a little more. I myself have been called a Bitcoin maximalist before, and, and depending on how you define the term, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Uh, I certainly don't think of myself uh, I, I don't label myself that way, but I, I also don't get offended by it. So, yeah, getting a little more into understanding that, and I, I think you you make an interesting point in in uh, thinking about how folks who believe that all the innovation has already happened uh, lead someone to be a Bitcoin maximalist. Because by that definition, I certainly am not a Bitcoin maximalist. I think there's a lot of innovation that's happening now that's valuable and a lot more innovation to come. But I want to hear more of your thoughts about the the distinctions and definitions around Bitcoin maximalism. Well, first, I'll say that I actually don't think of you as a Bitcoin maximalist. And here's why. It's because I think that there are a few things that we can make a distinction between here. Uh, and I think that it's important to understand maximalism versus toxic maximalism versus conviction or convictionalism, if there's such a word. Uh, but, you know, because, and I think it's important to understand for us to make a distinction between those three things, because anytime that you're even talking to somebody or reading or you're consuming information, um, it's helpful to recognize the biases of the source as well as your own. Uh, and, and I'll give some thoughts on my perspective of, of each of these three things here and then get your thoughts. But first, I see maximalism as a personality style that represents a strong opinion with an unwillingness to compromise is how I define maximalism. And I see toxic maximalism as more divisive, not only um, having an unwillingness to compromise, but actively putting down opposing views as being stupid ideas. So I think that's where the toxic part of maximalism comes in. And then I compare these to the idea of, of convictionalism, I'm going to call it, which I think represents a strong opinion that is an actively pursued focus. 
I'll say, but with an openness to hear other opinions. And I think that's where you fall. That's, that's what I would label you as. I know that you, you do have strong opinions about Bitcoin and beliefs about how it's going to fit into our society in the, in the long term. But you also have this openness to just hear other, other opinions about how the whole space is innovating. And if I give some quick examples of some crypto celebrities that I think fit into these categories, um, you know, because again, I think that it's, it's important that as you're consuming the content from people that you actually understand their viewpoint, it puts it into perspective for yourself. And if I talk about Anthony Pompliano as the maximalist here, you know, I used to listen to him every day, uh, a, a year or so ago when I you know, was really trying to dig deeper and learn about uh, all of this, uh, you know, because he's deep in the know when it comes to a lot of macro topics and investment topics. And he was one of the first authority figures that I learned from regarding Bitcoin. But I actually stopped listening to him several months ago, not because I thought that he was wrong, but because I thought that his bias towards Bitcoin and Bitcoin only made him a bit narrow-minded. And I didn't want to miss out on everything else that's happening in crypto. And I think the same goes for like Michael Saylor and now Jack Dorsey. And I don't close their content out completely, but I know where they fit in my overall mental model of the crypto ecosystem. You know, Michael Saylor, he just talks about Bitcoin and he believes there's no second best. There's, there's nothing else. So to him, he's only thinking of one thing. So I have no real reason to listen to him anymore because he's already said what he wants to say about it. Um, but, you know, that's kind of like the perspective of on maximalism for toxic maximalism. You know, there's a guy called Max Kaiser. There's no real reason to talk about him. But if you watch some clips of him, you might wonder, you know, if there's any rational conversation you can even have with someone with such extremist views. And I think extremism is where the toxic part of this comes in. And he's just very divisive. But when I look at someone with conviction, I think, you know, Rao Powell is a decent example because he believes in the whole macro thesis behind both Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, and Mark Cuban has even called himself uh, an ETH maximalist, although I think that he really means convictionalist in this perspective here. And that's why I think it's important to understand the differences because you know, he started off with a strong belief in Bitcoin, started moving towards Ethereum, but it's really because he sees the innovation in, in the whole ecosystem. And something interesting that I thought about, I don't know if, if you'll find this interesting, but you know how we kind of like to relate mental models from other areas. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about another way to put maximalism into perspective. And I looked at minimalism and maximalism from an artistic viewpoint. Hmm. So tell me what you think about this. <laughs> so uh, minimalism in like uh, graphic design is commonly thought of as having clean lines and neutral colors. And it could also be represented by bold backgrounds, but with simple lines and minimalist fonts. But essentially, the idea is that reducing the number of elements in a design allows the artist to focus on something specific, like a white room with a red couch, for example, and that's it. Uh, ultimately, here the concept is that less is more. 
And those who praise minimalism might, uh, they, they like to call it sophisticated, but the critics of minimalism will call it boring. And on the other spec, other end of the spectrum here, we have maximalism in graphic design uh, being represented by big, bold, loud, attention-grabbing colors and shapes and textures. Um, and it's almost like it's intended to create this anti-culture vibe like you know, graffiti or skateboarding, streetwear. And I think ultimately those who praise maximalism might say that it's bold and unique, while the critics of maximalism will call it chaotic and obnoxious. So uh, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this, and I'm not sure what you think about my comparison to the artistic side of, of maximalism. But when I was thinking about it, I actually wondered, do you think that Bitcoin is a minimalist protocol with a maximalist personality? That is really interesting. Yeah, because when you were describing minimalism, and, it, and it's interesting, I like the way you teed that up because uh, I, I actually don't know a lot about graphic design. And so your explanation of that is, is helpful. And yes, Bitcoin is in fact minimalist in in the way that that you've made the analogy, uh, and the maximalist personality that is interesting. And, and uh, you know, certainly there are self-described Bitcoin maximalists and even folks who proudly wear the label of toxic maximalism. So to them, it's not an insult to be called a toxic maximalist because they believe that they're like the the uh, the immune system. They're the antibodies that are driving out the disease of anything that's not Bitcoin, right? And so, uh, and so, yeah, there, there certainly can be a level of intentional obnoxiousness uh, that, that comes out of that. And, you know, they see themselves as, as bold and others see them as obnoxious, but the, uh, the way that the minimalist model there describes Bitcoin, I think is very apt. Yeah. And, and I wonder if, um, and I know you have some thoughts on, on Bitcoin and its, its stance on, on innovation. And I, I want to hear your thoughts on that. Um, a, a thought that I have is, you know, I, I feel like, and, and tell me if you, if you agree or disagree, but I, I feel like that, that Bitcoin maximalists aren't actually even interested in other areas of innovation. So it's not even so much that they, uh, that they disagree with, like, let's, we'll just use Ethereum as, as the, the counterpoint here. You know, they, it's not so much that they disagree with it. They just don't see any value in that ecosystem. Uh, like, you know, and of course, you know, we could talk about, you know, DeFi and NFTs and the other areas that I think we'll get into here. But I, I feel like that Bitcoin maximalists aren't even interested in other areas of innovation. They just see Bitcoin as being a, a solution to uh, inflation issues, to central banking issues. And that's all that they believe needs fixing. Like even when I, I, I look at somebody like Michael Saylor, I think that's all he believed needs to be fixed. That these other areas that blockchain are being used in just aren't even of value. So what do you think about, I mean, what, what, what do you think about Bitcoin's take on innovation and 
what it's the solutions it's or the the issues it's trying to solve and the other areas are they even relevant? I definitely think that there are real problems that are being um, looked at in the broader crypto ecosystem, and and you know a lot more about those than uh, other projects than I do. But we'll, we'll talk about them in a bit. But specifically to your to your question, uh, you know, Bitcoin certainly is innovating and continuing to innovate, uh, or I guess it's, uh, that's probably not the right way to phrase it. Bitcoin isn't innovating. Bitcoin developers, the Bitcoin community continues to innovate uh, with Bitcoin and around Bitcoin. So I, I, don't, I don't know that there's anyone who actually believes all the innovation is complete, or maybe someone does. But, but I think your point is valid that that folks don't recognize validity to the goals of these other projects. And I, I don't agree that there's no validity to the goals, but I'm concerned about the, the pace of innovation and the way that it's happening. And let me dig into that and just bear with me. This will take a little time to unpack. Um, so Bitcoin definitely innovates slowly. And that's one of the criticisms that comes from from uh, folks who are not on the Bitcoin bandwagon but I think it's a I think it's a good thing and so really the two hallmarks of, of Bitcoin are that it, it is maximally decentralized and it changes slowly and I would put forward the thesis and I can't prove that it's right. And I'm not even 100% convinced that it's right. But I tend to think that Bitcoin innovates at the right pace. And uh, I think that the, that the crypto ecosystem is subject to the same boom and bust cycles that the broader macro economy is, uh, is subject to. And a lot of it's driven by the fiscal and monetary stimulus cycles that happen uh, in the U.S. and and really globally right now in, in all major uh, economies where there's a lot of money being dumped into the economy and it has to go somewhere. And so just as in the 1920s, the stock market ran up and then collapsed, uh, we've seen it happen in our lifetimes where it's, you know, the, uh, the internet stocks went up and, and then crashed in the you know 2000 time frame we saw it with real estate in the uh, in the financial crisis uh, 2008 2009 and then we saw in in the crypto ecosystem we saw the 2017 ICO craze and now we're seeing real um, you know run-ups not just in the price of cryptos but in the investment into cryptos and a lot of what drives this now is is um, venture capital because the money has to go somewhere and so there's a lot of money to invest and venture capitalists are not looking for ordinary stock market type returns they're looking for unicorn type returns and so they're investing in a lot of these projects and what I'm what I'm not uh, first of all let me let me make a uh, an important caveat. Normally on our shows, we don't talk about current events because we are talking about broader concepts and principles that are more evergreen. But there's something I do want to address just because of the timing of when we're talking about this. Very recently, uh, Jack Dorsey recently resigned CEO of Twitter, 
got into a fight online with folks about uh, some of these topics. And he was very critical of the VC-driven altcoin projects and very much taking a Bitcoin maximalist stance. Um, I'm not here jumping on that bandwagon. You and I uh, have talked about these concepts well before any of that happened. I'm not calling anyone a scammer. Uh, there are scams, but there are lots of well-intentioned people also working on a lot of crypto projects. I'm not criticizing or calling anyone out in that way. What I'm talking about is sort of macroeconomic factors that are driving things. So with that caveat, what I'm saying is that because of the macroeconomic factors and the money supply and all of the money looking for somewhere to go, they're trying to drive innovation faster than the market is ready for, which raises a concern about the viability of a lot of these projects. And I think that perhaps Bitcoin, because it's not subject to that, is actually innovating at the right pace. And I'll give one historic example and then would love to hear your thoughts about it. Um, the historic example is that in the 2017 ICO craze, uh, and not just ICO, but lots of, you know, ETH was was very popular. And one of the criticisms of Bitcoin and one of the, the use cases that was put forward for some of these alternative protocols and tokens was that Bitcoin is too slow and too expensive. You'll never be able to buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin. And so we need alternatives. And so a lot of money and a lot of effort was put into trying to find those alternatives back in 2016, 2017, 2018. And where does that all sit right now? Well, Bitcoin, uh, the, the innovation in Bitcoin led to the Lightning Network. And guess what? You can buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin. Not everywhere, not globally. Certainly, I'm not saying that that adoption is complete, but I'm saying technologically, the problem has been solved by Bitcoin with the Lightning Network so that you can have instant, nearly free transactions with Bitcoin. And so all of the effort was that was put into those other projects was essentially premature. The market wasn't ready for a payment solution in 2017. When the market was ready, the Lightning Network was there. And so I'm concerned that, that the rest of the crypto ecosystem is trying to solve valid problems, but because all this money is being poured in, they're trying to solve problems that the market isn't yet looking for a solution to. So those, those are good points. I, uh, yeah, I, you know, I think in you know twenty in twenty fifteen when you know Ethereum launched, you know they they were looking for a way to improve upon you know transaction speeds, without knowing any real use case just yet. They just knew that the transaction speeds needed to be faster. And it took some time for all of these new use cases to like DeFi and NFTs and gaming start to start pop, you know, to, to pop up. And so I guess one, one argument that I would have regarding the VCs is, you know, there's been five, six years of innovation happening before v, these VCs have really started getting involved, which they are now. And I think that it's been, it hasn't been the VCs that have, have driven that initiated the innovation. They're, you know, now five years later, piggybacking on top of the innovation that individuals started. And also, I think that, yes, the VCs are pouring money into it. But the difference here, I believe, is that 
individuals like you and I, we'll call them, we'll call them the retail people. <laughs> retail folks have more opportunities now. VCs are pouring money into it and they're driving a lot of innovation. I'm okay with the speed of innovation because I think that sometimes you have to move fast and break some things in order to really, you know, drive things exponentially. But I think that the the blockchain, the in, the crypto ecosystem is going to enable more opportunities than the current centralized ecosystems do. And you know, in uh, yeah, I think when Jack Dorsey had, you know, in, I think one of his tweets, he had some, you know, comic strip image in there that had like this water faucet just pouring down the throat of VCs with little drips falling into retail. And one of the responses that I saw to that was that at least there are drips going to retail, whereas currently there aren't. It's literally the entities, the big institutions that are getting everything and retail gets nothing. That in this new world, maybe the VCs are now five or six years later. Really, it's more of like a decade later if you factor in Bitcoin. But the VCs are starting to pour money in because like you said, the money's got to go somewhere. This is the new shiny object. They want to put money into it. But blockchain, this decentralization has created an environment where retail can still participate, um, you know, financially, economically. So I think that there's benefits to all of that, even if VCs are, are putting money into it. Uh, do I, I definitely don't want to see them win everything, but I don't think that they are. I think there's a lot of individuals that are, that are winning in this game. Um, and I, I kind of want to lead into something here and because I want to make, as we're talking about this, I want to make a comparison that I think sort of ties in like the innovation of, of all of this. And, and I want to get your thoughts on it. So if I, if, if I set the stage here by making a, a comparison to the internet. Now, the internet in the early days was called the information superhighway. I don't think anybody calls it that anymore because I think it's so uh, ingrained in our, our lifestyle. But you know, in the early days, it was called the information superhighway because it was unique in the way that it enabled more efficient communication and information sharing. And ultimately, new commerce and business models, uh, which is now a part of our everyday life, were kind of born from that. And in comparison, blockchains and crypto are essentially a database superhighway. So instead of an information superhighway that enables more efficient um, instead of a, an information superhighway, this database superhighway enables more efficient you know, financial transactions, transfer of ownership, and storage of digital assets, and, uh, and new stores of value, financial infrastructure, uh, digital forms of art, digital forms of utility. Um, you know, these are all leading new decentralized business models where you know, as I was saying earlier, more individuals are able to own and participate financially than just the centralized entities. Uh, and I think understanding the concept of ecosystems in this case might help explain how I see innovation happening. So in an ecosystem, even like a biological ecosystems, um, you have these broad categories 
that drill down into more specific subcategories. And with some of these directly interacting with each other more than others, uh, but in the blockchain world, and of course it's all evolving and there are different ways to interpret things, but when trying to simplify into a model, here's how I think about it. There are top level categories like cryptocurrencies and smart contract platforms. And cryptocurrencies can be used for stores of value and, uh, and transactional payments, mediums of exchange. And smart contract platform tokens can arguably also be used for stores of value and transactional payments, but also enable these subcategories of economic value like DeFi, NFTs, gaming, governance, and even network infrastructure is a part of this ecosystem. Uh, but the basis for these tokens revolve around decentralized ownership and the ability to transact and share value without requiring intermediaries. Or, you know, actually individuals like us can sometimes participate as intermediaries uh, in this new blockchain crypto world. And I think that's where, you know, I was saying before that retail is at least able to participate in all of this. Um, but, you know, but then we get into, well, why do there need to be so many tokens? You know, I think that's one of the arguments when we start talking about, you know, when, when people start talking about Ethereum and all of these other layer ones and all these other cryptos are like, well, why do there need to be so many tokens? And I think just keeping it simple here that I think of tokens as individual companies that drive value to their token through, you know, utility, which would be like, you know, meaning ways that you can use it like collateral governance, um, as well as supply and demand. And I think those are the ways to drive value to these tokens. But if we think about them, these, these tokens or these protocols as they're as separate companies themselves, it's essentially like a decentralized company that we as retail can participate in. And can that's I, why, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, can I, yeah, I just want to jump in and, and make a distinction and, and then maybe have you help flesh out the distinction. So the, the, you know, why do we need multiple tokens, multiple cryptocurrencies? Uh, there are some underlying technical differences, right? So it's not just a, you know, a marketing slick that's different from one to the other. There are technical differences between them. And so, for example, uh, if we just take Bitcoin and Ethereum and talk about the differences with those, there are a couple very fundamental differences. The number one is the scripting languages, the programming languages that you use to create applications on Bitcoin uh, versus Ethereum are different. Bitcoin is not a Turing complete scripting language, whereas Ethereum is. And, and it was in, Ethereum was intentionally created uh, with the uh, belief that it needed a Turing complete language. Now, what does that mean? Let me define what that means. It's very simply, uh, uh, Alan Turing defined this concept of what does a, what's the minimal set of functions that a programming language needs in order to essentially do all logical operations. And what's missing from the Bitcoin scripting language that makes it not Turing complete is that you cannot do loops. You can do if then else statements, but you cannot do a loop uh, programming construct within the Bitcoin scripting language. And what that does is um, 
it certainly is part of why Bitcoin innovates slowly uh, and it is not uh, doing smart contracts that are possible on other platforms, but it makes it more secure. So when we hear about smart contract hacks uh, that where people lose their tokens, it's really not so much hacks, it's poorly written contracts where people don't understand the implications of what happens in that Turing complete language and they write a contract that has flaws in it. And so um, so that's, that's the sort of fundamental underlying technical difference. And the other difference is the degree of centralization. You know, Bitcoin is um, more centralized than any of these alternatives and, and it fundamentally will remain that way. So the trade-offs that are made to create these alternative protocols, tokens, cryptocurrencies, make it less centralized and less secure than Bitcoin. And I'm sure there are other trade-offs. And again, in life, there are always trade-offs. I'm not saying no one should make these trade-offs. I'm just saying we need to recognize them. Uh, But there may be other sort of trade-offs that happen within the other uh, other protocols and, and tokens that you know more about than I do. Yeah, and, and there's there's so many different directions that we can go with all of this. And I know that you know in this episode here, we're trying to you know focus you know in, in this segment here just about like the the innovation. You know, you started by talking about Bitcoin innovating at the right pace, and that these others may be moving too fast and 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 stuff. So, and I think to a, a point that you're making there, there there is this this trilemma is the big thing you know, is the big part that drives a lot of these different blockchains. And the trilemma is this triangle here of speed, security, and decentralization. Those are the three areas. And you, and they say that you can really only have two of the three. And that's why it's the trilemma, because which two of the three are you going to focus on? Bitcoin focuses on security and decentralization. That's its strength, but it doesn't have the speed, like transaction speed. Um, now, when we talk about innovation in blockchain, the way that they're, they have been trying to address that, of course, they have the Lightning Network, which is like a layer two that enables this faster speed using, block, uh, using Bitcoin. Uh, they have, and when, we, when you talk about the Turing completeness and smart contracts, I know that Bitcoin recently launched their Taproot upgrade, which is supposed to enable more a smart contract development on there. I know that there are a couple of companies like um, Stacks and DeFi Chain that are building sidechain or layer two blockchains that work with Bitcoin. And we don't have to go into too many details here, but you know they have their own token, which you know on a layer two they have they use their own security mechanism. They or they. They use Bitcoin's security. They leverage that security, but they have their own token. And you know, I think the 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 point that I'm you know trying to make here is that there is innovation happening with smart contracts uh, that everyone and with these blockchain blockchains that are trying to address this trilemma of speed, security, and decentralization. Some of them will focus more on speed and decentralization some will focus on speed and security but again there can only be two of the two of the three and you know i think to, to kind of bring, to bring my point together here 
you know, when I try to relate all of this, you know, back to Bitcoin and its innovation, I kind of compare Bitcoin to Microsoft and see what you think about this. Uh, you know, Microsoft was the tech company in the 90s, but some would say that they missed the internet and they missed mobile, which are effectively web one and web two. And they even released their Zoom MP3 player five years after the Apple iPod. So it didn't last very long. Uh, and, you know, a decade later or, you know, whatever the time frame you know, has been, they have become successful with, you know, their Azure, you know, product as a decent second place web hosting solution to Amazon's AWS. But, you know, my point is that Microsoft isn't really innovators and they don't have to be in order to be successful. Uh, and I believe myself personally that Bitcoin will be the store of value in the future. And maybe that's all it needs to be. That when we're talking about innovation, maybe it doesn't have to innovate like these other areas are doing. Maybe it can just be a store of value that you can use as like a savings or money market account. And maybe you'll, you know, you keep funds in stable coins for regular payments and transactions. And then maybe this web three environment, which that's, you know, that's what it's being called web three, the new era of the internet, that those can be used for investments for your investment side of your portfolio um, into web three you know, protocols and digital assets. And that, you know, I guess the, the pace of Bitcoin, it's okay that it's slow because it doesn't need to be anything else. But I think that innovation does need to happen. And I think that it's okay that these other areas, these other blockchains, these other protocols on these blockchains are innovating, innovating rapidly. They're making missteps the same way that in the early days of the internet, there were missteps. Um, you know, you didn't even, you couldn't even, you know, there wasn't even a security protocol initially when you would buy online in the early days until you had hacks. And then all of the, you know, the innovation then started improving and tightening these things up, but it happened because people were moving fast and there were winners and losers, things broke, but, you know, we got to where we are today because there were a lot of people that took some big risks. And I think that's where we are now as you have people taking big risks, making some mistakes, but really driving important innovation. And now the VCs are seeing that and now they're pouring money into it. It's going to create some good things and some bad things for sure. And it's causing people to make a lot of money and it's causing people to lose a lot of money. Um, and I think that we have to be careful, but I, you know, I think that the pace of innovation is, is okay. Good. Well, I, I think, uh, this definitely sets up future episodes that we're going to do because we do, we are doing a very cursory overview of some of these other things that are areas of innovation like decentralized finance, like NFTs, like uh, functional protocols and tokens like uh, Filecoin uh, and things like that. So we want to keep this at, at kind of the, the focus level on the innovation and some of these functional distinctions. And, and as we said at the outside, kind of a outset, kind of a response to 
episode 47 of Mentally Unscripted. So I, I am very open to learning more about that. And specifically, it's part of why I enjoy discussing it with you, because you have a lot more understanding of the broader crypto ecosystem. And I certainly recognize that there are real problems that the folks are trying to solve. I am concerned as you talk about people, you know, making money and and losing money, these boom bust cycles, uh, folks who believe that the innovation is happening at the right pace and that they're going to solve problems could potentially make a lot of money if they're on the front side of that or lose a lot of money if they're on the back side of that on, on the, the bust part of the boom bust cycle. But on the other hand, maybe I'm just wrong and this innovation is going to continue of course, with ups and downs, but essentially continue in a more or less up and to the right uh, direction without without that bust part of the cycle that I'm concerned about. Now, and I think that we can, you know, like you said, we're just trying to cover a lot of things just broadly right now in this episode. But you know, I think DeFi is an area that I'd like to to, to maybe address in the, in the next episode or a future episode, which I think can tie some of these points we're making today together. You know, we talked about maximalism, um, which, you know, I, I still think there's a good point to make between maximalism and convictionalism. And I think that if we talk about DeFi, Bitcoin is developing slowly and they're trying to develop DeFi now. And I think Stacks is an important company that we can maybe talk about when we do discuss DeFi and how Stacks is developing DeFi on Bitcoin. A question, you know, if, if I relate this, relate this back to my Microsoft Zoom player example, you know, are they five years too late? Hmm. You know, the Zoom was five years too late and they did a poor job of marketing it and launching it and it just crashed, but they were five years too late. Is Stacks on uh, DeFi in general on Bitcoin too late because there are innovators that are a few years ahead of them now. Maybe, maybe not, but I think that's a good conversation to get into as we talk about the pace of innovation. We talk about maximalism and convictionalism, and we talk about uh, DeFi, because I think that there are some maximalists that will just wait for DeFi on Bitcoin to do anything. They don't even want to try it on these other blockchain ecosystems because they're maximalists. Um, but we have convictionalists that believe in uh, innovation in general. And I think that if we can talk about maximalism, convictionalism, DeFi, the pace of innovation of DeFi on blockchain and other, I mean, on Bitcoin and other blockchains, maybe that'll make a good episode to tie some of these points together. I like it. I like it. And I, I really appreciate your distinction between the maximalist and the convictionalist. And I think there's a good takeaway there not only about crypto, but about life in general. Uh, don't try to have a conversation believing that you're going to change someone's mind if, uh, if their mind is closed, or uh, even less, less so the focus on changing their mind, but as you're trying to learn from someone, understanding their bias and, and realizing that perhaps they're coming from a maximalist viewpoint or even a toxic maximalist viewpoint rather than someone who's in an open conversation trying to learn. Agreed. All right. I guess uh, we can wrap it up here. Excellent conversation with you as always. All right. Well, folks, check out uh, 
our website at mentalsupermodels.com. Also check out Mentally Unscripted. And uh, on our website, we have links there for how you can connect with me and with Jeremy on LinkedIn. That's our primary way of, of connecting with folks. So find us there. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Thanks Jeremy. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.